Philippians 3, we just sang Philippians 3, I count all things rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may gain Christ. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, I uh, want to speak today on the marks of a healthy church. The marks of a healthy church, and you may take it a step further, the marks of a healthy Christian. Um, and uh, we're going to let Dr. Jesus give the x-ray. And he's going to examine the church and put the stethoscope on. You know, I just went through a thing here recently. I started hurting uh, on my side and everything. And since I have a bad pancreas, I was a little alarmed, scared about it. Don't want anything in that area hurting me. But I thought it was internal organs uh, hurting me. And so it got bad enough. That's the way it is with men. It's got to get bad enough uh, to go to the doctor. And so I finally got in there. And so he ordered all these tests. And I had to have a CAT scan. And uh, then I, I read the report the next day. He said, Mr. Howard, you have a fractured rib. And, uh, I, and, and they said, do you know how? I said, well, I, I know my wife's become more aggressive as she's gotten, <laughs> a, you know, you never know. They get carried away. And, uh, but I didn't know. I had no idea. Uh, but that x-ray, that's CAT scan, whatever it took them, and putting that dye through me, Boom, just like that. And so I've been healing up from it. I still don't know how I, how I did it. And I tell her to hug me a little bit easier. And uh, uh, I thought, you know what? This is Christ. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus, 60 years after Pentecost and the cross, about that time, uh, he gives us a progress report on seven churches. Seven churches. Someone has said that we are always one of those churches. That the conditions that was found in those churches uh, are probably typical of what's going on in churches over these uh, nearly 2,000 years. And so he, he looks at them uh, and he does three things. He First of all, it commends him. And we want to look at that commendation to see the things that he considered. They were healthy. Uh, they were strengths. And so they're commended. Okay? And then he goes further than that. He starts offering his criticism or he critiques these various churches. Uh, and some, two churches, there was no criticism. Smyrna, a suffering church in Philadelphia, uh, a church that was doing things right, and they were not ever, nothing that brought his criticism. And then, finally, he gives commands, or think of it as prescriptions to the churches that aren't having good health, that are not uh, where they ought to be, and he prescribes what they ought to do. Now, what I'm going to try to do is move quickly. I, I've preached these churches before, but it took me 10 weeks 
So what we're going to do is we're going to helicopter as we work through them because I don't want to stay too long and just get this overview of what church life was 60 years after the church began. What church life looked like, not to a church consultant, but to the head of the church, Christ, who has eyes like an x-ray machine. He looks through everything. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in your life, right? And he knows what's going on in this church. And we're not the only church on the block. They're all over the globe. And so Christ moves among the lampstands, examining, commending, critiquing, evaluating. Let's look at the churches and the commendations he gives, and these are the signs of good health. Let's begin with the church at Ephesus. Verse 2, I know your works. That's nice. Uh, at least they were doing something. Uh, Spurgeon said, it's the book of Acts, not the book of talk. Has your Christianity made you do anything? Has it made you ever learn to say amen in church? Uh, and, and you think about that, uh, there's a famous line out of the Reformation that said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And James picks this up in James 2, a faith that produces no works, no good works. We're big to say as Protestants, you're not saved by works. Amen? Amen. But the faith that saves results in you doing works. I'll say that again. The faith that saves produces a people who carry out the, the assignment of Christ. I've got good works. For instance, give you an example. The Great Commission. The two missing words in the Great Commission are teach them to obey. All we talk about is go, disciple, baptize. Did you know verse 20 says, and teach them to obey everything I've told you. Uh, a faith without obedience is a faith that will not get you to heaven. Yeah, see, uh, I love Jesus. I just, you know, just heard recently, I love Jesus. I just like to rob banks. Well, you know, bless your heart. You need to be saved. You're not going to heaven on just saying, I love Jesus. When Jesus truly saves, he puts a willingness, a desire. He energizes you to be willing and to be doing of his good pleasure. Now, he commends them for their works, and I must go faster, right? Your toil and your patient endurance. And that patient endurance means your ability to remain under pressure and that you're doing a good job of that. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So they were not tolerant towards evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. You're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I wish he could say that about me any day of the week. Is that not wonderful? I mean, you're doing work. You're faithful. You're patient under trial, under test. 
Matter of fact, what an amazing, you have not become weary. Uh, as a church, I, they, they're doing all right. I would wish he would say that about us. Uh, are you weary of living for God? You wouldn't be the Ephesians church. Uh, are you engaged in doing any good works for his name? Uh, are you not doing anything? I find the most critical people in the church are doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't, uh, they say of the mule, you can't pull and kick at the same time. Make up your mind. Are you going to pull? Are you going to kick? It's already convicting, isn't it? You, oh, I don't like I don't like the Sunday school class my child's in. Do you ever teach a class? We've got all kinds of people always telling us the ministries we ought to start. You know the main thing that starts ministry is people. People that have the burden, people that make themselves available. God gets ministry done through his people that are willing to work for it. It's, it's not rocket science. So great commendation. We go on, and we come to the church of Smyrna, and they're a church that is in suffering. And he says to them in 9, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. That is physical, but you're rich, rich in God. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So they're obviously getting persecuted by the local Jewish unbelievers that are opposing the church. And they're coming against them. And he tells them, you're about to face a severe trial. It's going to last 10 days. Get ready for it. I'm going to be with you in it. And you're going to be tested. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Does God test his people? And God tested Abraham, Genesis 22, 1. Take your only son, your son Isaac, go up to Moriah. Can you imagine God ever doing that to you? And when you get up there, put him on the altar, raise your knife, and be just, just seconds away from plunging it into his heart. God tested the man of God. And James has counted all joy when God decides to test you. Because he's going to work out and produce something in your character that freedom from tests will never, never produce. I never forget taking my father to hear an aspiring young preacher coming up, and uh, we were coming home. I, I asked him, oh, what's your appraisal of this aspiring young preacher that was kind of the rave in the group we were with? And he simply said, he simply said, once he has suffered, he will be worth listening to. But, but he's a novice. He knows little about life. He's got to have some great heartbreaks to ever be able to preach to the heartbroken. So God has some tests for all of us to make us more effective. And he comforts us in our trials that we may comfort others. But this church, uh, he said, you get made to be severely tested, but you're doing what I want. I'll get you through the test. He goes to Pergamum, 
And at Pergamum, he says in verse 14, uh, well, let's take it back. Says, I know where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine saying, we've started a local church where Satan has a throne. His headquarters is where we plant the church of Pergamum. It's satanic headquarters. Yet you're holding fast my name. This is courage. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Just read a thing where George Barnard did a, an appraisal of churches across the United States. And in Barnard's report, he said, the most unchurched area in the United States is the San Francisco Bay Area. And then he had another category, the most de-churched area of the country. That means they went to church, but they quit church. They've had enough of church, the San Francisco Bay Area. Where do we live? Yeah. Satan has a throne in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we dare to have a church. We dare have a church. This is satanic territory. They hate God as a whole, and they don't know God, and they're in the midst of perishing. And God told us to come here, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Tell them Jesus is abundantly able to save. He can save you out of the domain of Satan, right? For we were all once children of Satan, energized by the God of this age. So here, they're courageous in this sense, they're standing true. Even where the shadow of a satanic movement was running the city. He goes on to talk about Thyatira. He says, I, I have this against you in verse 20. Uh, you tolerate the woman Jezebel and who calls herself a prophet and she seduces my servants and leads them into sin. I forgot in Pergamum, they have the same kind of influence going on because they were teaching the teaching of Balaam. I forgot that verse 14. I have a few things against you. Some there hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. There obviously was in this church a movement, a person, how widespread, we don't know, but he said they were teaching just like Balaam. And 2 Peter 2 warns about Balaam kind of teachers. Jude warns against Balaam kind of teaching. What are the teachings of Balaam? Numbers describes four attempts of Balaam. Balak, the king of Midian, hires Balaam. He's known as a prophet. I want you to come. I'll give you some money. I want you to pronounce a curse on Israel as they're in their wilderness journey and they're headed for the promised land. Curse them. And four times he tries to do it. Even a donkey withstands him in the road. He, he, he's going on his way, and 
every time he'd start to prophesy, and the king would even be there, and he starts out in his mind, I'm going to put a curse, and before you know it, he said, and God's going to bless you, and, and God's going to, the, and the king said, wait, this is not why I hired you. You got, you got the orders mixed up. I said, curse them. And finally, Balaam said, I can't curse whom God chooses to bless. Do you think the devil wants to curse this audience? Who do you think is keeping you from being cursed? If the devil had his way, you'll all be dead before the day's over. He comes to kill and destroy. The devil wants to kill your marriage, kill your kids, and kill you. He hates you. Get that straight. We have someone that is a mortal enemy. But guess what? We got a legal defender who's telling the devil what he can do and can't do, and he restrains him. He restrains He wanted to kill Job, and God stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. You'll get him where he wants to die, but I won't let you kill him because I'm going to heal him eventually and restore him. But what did Balaam do? He met with the king, and he said, you know what? Since we can't curse this uh, nation, why don't we corrupt them? I'll sell you an idea. Get the women of Midian to dress seductively, wear some midnight and Midian perfume, and be on the edge of the camp, and these viral Jewish men are going to lust for them. And if we can get them to sin, God will kill them anyway. 24,000 men were killed at Baal of Peor, Numbers 23. And they, it's even recorded in Deuteronomy. Joshua them never forgot that this low-down prophet sold the king an idea to get them killed. And he said, you've got people there that are leading my people into immorality and into idolatry, and it's going to make me come in, and if I have to discipline them to death, I will. Amen. They're killing my church by seducing it to sin. Who's seducing you? Anybody seducing you to sin, to idolatry? I'll tell you what's seducing you, that thing you call a phone that you just got to have. You don't have to go to the brothel, just own a phone. You got all the sin you can stand right there. Just got to find out where everything is. You can see all the nudity you want, all the perversion, all the immorality, everything, and it's right there. And of course your children need a phone by the time they're 12 to stay in touch. Guess what, honey? They're in touch with more than you. Be seduced. Be seduced. Get us where we're dirty. Get us where we're in sin. Get us where God has to discipline us, where God has to grieve in us. Get us where God can't work through us because he's got to work on us. Watch, there's people there that are seducing you like the Nicolaitans, like the Balaam teachers. And he warns them in Thyatira of the same kind of thing. We come to Sardis, and he says of Sardis, you know what? You've got a great reputation. But right now, in reality, you're dead. 
Matter of fact, he said, when are you going to wake up? When are you going to start acting alive towards me now? And that is a scary thing. I think of us 47 years together that the Bible has been taught. People have prayed. People have given their money. People have served. On and on. And uh, you think you can live on your reputation? You can't. It's wonderful. When we went through the scandal that we underwent for about three years ago and lost 150 people and thousands of dollars of financial support, one pastor told me, he said, had you not had a reputation that would have buried your church when they blasted on the evening news, when they put it in the newspaper, that you have been invaded by those who are seducing your children, said, that buries the church. He said, maybe your reputation will see you through. Well, something about a reputation it takes a lifetime to earn it, and you're going to lose it in a day. One day. And God in his grace has been healing us for coming back. I thank God for our youth workers and our youth ministry and all you faithful, godly people that are protecting our children. God bless you. But what you were doesn't mean it's what you are. You got a name. You got a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He goes to Philadelphia a church that he commends. And his commendation of them is very simple. He said, one thing, I know your strength is little. Then he says, but you've not denied my name and you've kept my word. That's basically all. He didn't say you have a big building, you got lots of money. Yeah. No, 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 no. I know you've got little strength. It's a word, asthenes. You have no strength. Yeah, You're not impressive physically, uh, materially, externally. You're, you're, you're a weak group. That's what Jesus, but you know what? Weakness doesn't bother Jesus. It bothers you. He's been working with weak folks for a long time. But two things he does look for. What do you think of my name and will you keep my word? See, it's interesting if you study the history of liberalism, I'm talking about church liberalism, and fundamentals in this church. The liberals always get the property because the fundamentalists usually move out of an apostate church, and they're always starting out in another Grange Hall, some storefront. They always look poor on the economic because they leave the liberals. You can have the property. Menlo Park Press just had to pay the Presbyterian Convention millions of dollars to buy the property back from the Presbyterian denomination because they were going liberal, and Menlo Park says, we're not going liberal, we'll buy the property from you. We're going to leave here paying you off because we're going to preach Christ and preach the Bible. Thank God for them. Well, he goes on to Laodicea, 
and he could teach Laodicea, and I find this the hardest church to figure out. Look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And I just asked, asked, well, what in the world are you talking about? I want my coffee hot. I don't like it cold. So are we talking about coffee? It's a metaphor. What does it mean? We'll guess after a while. Would that you were either cold or hot. That's what scares you. You would either them be cold or hot. Hmm. Whatever cold means, hmm. it's hard to think of Jesus saying, I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, basically, you give me indigestion, I want to vomit you out. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Ah, there's a clue of the lukewarm. I don't need a thing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, they didn't know any of this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There's all kinds of uh, different speculations, and I'm sincere when I say I find it very difficult to interpret, uh, is that um, some have used the analogy, they did have a water issue there. The water that came from Hierapolis, which was in the same vicinity, we'd say the same county uh, as the Church of Laodicea, the water from Hierapolis was hot, Boiling springs had medicinal value and it was a valuable resource. They had another source of water that came out of Colossae that was cold water and in a culture without ice and a culture that it's anything cold would be refreshing. And so there was two water sources and some, okay, that's a historical kind of a background. But what is he saying? And, and here's the tension. I wish uh, you were cold or hot. So, I think most scholars are inclined to make cold that you are not saved. That's what Robert Thomas says. I wish that you were either unsaved or fervently saved. I wish you one or the other. And, and it, it's tough to see that. Okay, now we're going to get a third category. But you, you're neither that. And so the cold, that would be you're unsaved. You need to be evangelized. You need to come to Christ. You need, if that's true, if that's exactly what it means. And the word hot is used of being zealous, uh, be boiling for the Lord. It's used that way. He warns in Matthew 24, be careful lest you become cold 
So it's used negatively, always a negative state. Toward, you ought to be boiling towards God. Don't be cold. Don't give me a cold shoulder. So what is it? Then we come over here to medi mediocre, lukewarm. And at least he defines what the lukewarm look like. There are people who think they're well that aren't. They think they're rich, but they're not. They think they're, um, they can see, but they can't. And they're telling Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need anything. So they don't, uh, they're not poor in spirit because it sounds to me like they're a very prosperous group materially. Uh, they're doing good. It's like in evangelism, many critics of Christianity say, you're only good for poor people. If you've got a job and you've got a good car, you don't need Christianity. And that's why so many say, that's why you go to India. There's so many poor people. It's not a rich man's faith. Well, it is true that not many rich are saved. Jesus said that. But what's impossible with men is possible with God. So mediocre or lukewarm is a condition that sickens Christ and is I'm going to spew you out. So uh, between being cold and be, being lukewarm, it sounds like the majority of this church is maybe unsaved people who feel no need of God and are saying they are saved. What is it that is making Christ sick of them? Uh, so it's tough to, to unpackage the metaphor. I wish you were burning for me. And if you're not burning for me, I, I could be just as happy with you being cold and indifferent toward me. I can't stand the hypocritical, compliant, satisfied, unsaved people who are acting pious on Sunday and saying, all is well. When they're really blind, they're really naked, they're really spiritually poor in my sight, but they don't know it. They don't admit it. They've talked themselves, and this is what Christianity is. You don't need to have a burn. That's only the radicals. If you've ever read the life of William Wilberforce when he's fighting slavery, Wilberforce had family members that had become Methodists. And when he was going to run for parliament, he was warned, you can't run with the Methodists. They are called the enthusiasts. And the Anglican church cannot stand enthusiasm. And they were called that, the enthusiasts. See, I grew up with that as a Pentecostal boy. What we lacked in knowledge, we made up for in enthusiasm. <laughs> we did. And I don't need any of you telling me what I was and what I wasn't and everything wrong with them. I wish the conservatives could get some enthusiasm, some fervor, some burn with everything they say they believe. Yeah. You believe ten times more than what I ever believed, and you're act half dead many times. Truth is not on fire, doesn't get out of town. You got anything that burns? Anything you can't be quiet about? 
Anything you can't stay home about, I got to tell somebody, I got to share, I got to serve, I got to praise him. I can't be silent. I'm not letting the rocks take over. Where do you get that? The Holy Spirit is the source of the energy. Don't blame it on him. But you might not have it. The reason you don't show it, you don't have it. And you won't admit it because you say, I'm in good standing. I'm just as good a Christian as anybody else. Oh, are you? Jesus said, I'm x-raying people that go to that church. They're blind in my sight. They're poor in my sight. But they keep telling me, thanks, Jesus. Give it to somebody that needs it. I don't need it. So, now lukewarm, he's going to spew them out of his mouth, and uh, it scares you. It scares you, because it might be us. It might be you. He uh, makes recommendations, and he commands. They're very simple. The leading word in every church that's out of adjustment, he says, repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change the direction you're going. Repent. Turn around. Turn around. Go the right direction. Turn away from this. Go the right direction. Change your mind. So the Spirit of God will have to convince you that you are in need, that you do have a... Uh, let's take number one. Let's just ask this question. Um... Are you a hard worker, but you may have lost your first love? And the word there is not lost, it's leave. You left it. It's not you lost it. You left your first love. Um, is that possible? Can you be an active church worker that simply does not love Christ like you did when you were first saved? Uh, how, how do I get back, Lord? I, I'm backslid. I looked up the word backslide. I, I grew up with that word, but since we've been in Valley, we never used backslide. You read Jeremiah 2, 3, uh, chapter 31, read Hosea 11, and backsliding was the term he used of Israel when they went to idols and, and they went away. And backsliding... If you've ever been around livestock and you're trying to get them down the chute, that animal could be stubborn and hold back. I watched my uncle taking a bunch of hogs to market, and he let them grow wild in this government land. By the time they took them, they were not domesticated animals. They had grown their horns. Every, they, they used clubs. It was Humane society wouldn't want to be there because, man, they were stubborn. They'd pull back. I jumped out of the corral because it became dangerous. Those hoofs, they were charging us, and I'm a 80-pound uh, boy. Man, I'm jumping out. I'm getting out of that chute. Back, back, back. And God keeps saying, come to me. Repent. No, I will not. I will not. I'm stubborn. I want to have my way. I'm okay. Leave me alone. No preacher's going to get me to repent, not even the head of the church. I refuse. I'm going to stay right in the place I am. And he said, that word for uh, 
You've left your first love. That word first was translated in Luke 15. Bring out the best robe. You've left the best love. And what gets me, you ask, where do people go usually? Well, they'll go to sports. You know, 49ers, we can't expect faithful attendance during the football season. They say now a faithful attender in church in America is twice a month. Anybody grow up where you went every Sunday? Anybody dare ever go to evening service? Did God give you enough strength to hold a job? That way, I can't hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Pentecostals in those days, we went late. But my brother and I used to go to St. John's on 14th Street in Oakland because we went and heard St. John's Black Choir, and I'd be there to 11. And then E. e. Cleveland came on on Alcatraz Street. We'd drive over and hear him. We couldn't get enough. But now, folks, they become weary of serving God. Hey, you haven't even served him. You're just driving to church three blocks. <laughs> We're going to start putting B12 in the baptistry. <laughs> just drink it as we put you under. Y'all think of our black brothers and sisters how long? I've been at black funerals for three and a half hours. Any of you ever been there? Come on, you brothers. Three and a half. God must have made black folks different than white folks. We can only take it about an hour. It's amazing how much energy God can give you if you're burning. It ain't their body. It's the thirst. Can't get enough. Now we got so much. Every one of our homes entertainment centers. When I grew up, we hadn't even got TV yet. We had to go to church. That's the only place you could hear live music. <laughs> but I'm saying what happens, we leave first love. I used to have a, I had a reputation of being a praying man, but that's a reputation if I'm not doing it now. I, I used to have a reputation for having a zeal to win the loss, but that's my reputation. It's not my present practice. I've outgrown all that stuff. I've gotten mature. No, you've gotten calcified. You're not mature. Because you've substituted knowledge for practice. I know a lot, so what? The devil does too. I think the devil can pass any doctrinal exam you can pass. It's convicting. I stayed so convicted trying to write these notes. I just asked God, I hope you can help me repent like I ought to repent. Because it scares me. Who said a preacher can't backslide? Uh, he warns Pergamum. You've got to get rid of these false teachers. But once again, his word was repent. 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 He told uh, Ephesus, remember where you've left off. Repent and do your first works over again. Remember. Remember how Andre Crouch wrote that song, Take Me Back. Take me back to the place where I first met you. Sometimes you need to rehearse where you've come from. How far has he brought you?
Some of you need to remember how desperately dark it was when you came to Jesus. And now you substituted schedules, hobbies, sports, money, this and that. You know what? We used to sing a lot about heaven because we didn't have any 403Bs or 401Ks. Everything was in ahead of us because we were all poor folks. Now we got the money, we got the insurance, we got the cars, we got the this, we got that, and folks are going to church less than ever. You know, uh, what does it take to get your attention? Some of you have been intending to do the right, but you haven't. So what is he saying? I'm checking your health. I'm putting the thermometer in. I'm putting the stethoscope. First of all, i got a church that does not love me. I've got one that is making me sick because of their attitude. And he ends finally there in Revelation 3. And I thank Evan for giving me a, a good word here where he says, Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, and our word, that word zealous, be hot, be passionate, and repent. Once again, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And in the first service, I made that solely the church, but after his insight that helped me, if anyone hears my voice, he now he goes to personal invitation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and I'm, I'm trading back, it has to be their will, their heart. Christ is the door. Now he says you're the owner of a door. It must be your will, must be. You know, C.S. Lewis had a famous line that the door to hell was locked from the inside. Men go to hell because they keep their heart's door locked. It's locked from the inside. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, look at the picture, the famous picture, Christ at the door. And, and, and he doesn't say a sovereign God will kick in the door. By George, I'm God, I'm sovereign, I'm a Calvinist, I'm coming in. He didn't say that. He appeals to you. He's not a rapist. He will not force himself on even his bride. I'm waiting for you to want me to come in. Amen. When will you open the door to your life to your future, to your poverty, to your blindness, to your wrong view of where you really are, and let Christ come in. And notice what he said he would do when he comes in. He said, if you'll let me come in, I'm going to cook a meal for you so your spiritual starvation ends. Listen, listen. I will come into him and eat with him. Well, who's going to supply the food? The one coming in, not us. We're in poverty. We don't have anything to feed him. He's the bread. He's the water. Let him come in. 
And eating in the Orient was fellowship and friendship. You didn't eat with enemies. And he with me. Christ makes an appeal to every one of us. If you'll let me come in, I could turn up the temperature in your soul. If you'll let me come in, I can restore the first love. It's a pitiful thing. You could be married to a woman you don't love like you did when you married her. So you start hearing songs like Faded Love. <laughs> or if you want to stay in BB's, the thrill is gone. That could be the description of your Christian life. The thrill is gone. What happened to the thrill? Usually, what really can chill a marriage is for you to get a third party that looks prettier. And that's what Israel did. She always went plain with another woman, and God didn't look good enough. And he said, why are you plain the prostitute? But he said, you're worse than a prostitute, Israel. You don't even charge for your favors. You give yourself to anything but me. Let me ask you this. Uh, what's your spiritual health like? Uh, as he goes, can he say you're a hard worker? Are you a patient worker? Uh, are you enduring the trials and the tests God's put in your life? Uh, what's God doing through you? Praise God, these churches were doing some things right. And then they had some conditions. First love, tolerating evil, the Balaamites, the Nicolaitans. Had to take care of that. Their temperature, it was full of a church that uh, acted like they were saved, but they weren't. But in the meantime, they'd say, I'm in excellent health. And he'd say, you're dying of spiritual cancer because you don't know the state of your heart. Then what does he say? If you'll open the door, I'll come in. I'll do heart surgery, and by the way, I'll supply a meal that will make you abound. Amen. Open your heart's door yes. to a living Christ, and church can become exciting again, and we can get healthy. Our Heavenly Father, we tremble before your word. We tremble before your evaluations. Here I am in a church that came from zero $140 a month rent. So little light, we could barely read our Bibles during the meeting. Uh, cooked in the summer, ball games nearly in our auditorium, it was so close. And you blessed, you blessed. We uh, did deny your name, and we did our best to teach your word. And now we are, can say we're a rich church. We, we got buildings. We've got property. We've got uh, probably $20 million worth of assets around here. And yet we can be poor and blind yeah. and beggarly. If you're not inside our heart controlling us. Lord Jesus, I personally was so confronted by you yesterday trying to prepare the last two days. I've been mourning 
over my own spiritual life, thinking I got a better reputation than I have a than I have reality. Oh, I've been known to do this. Oh, known to do that. Known to that doesn't count. It's what am I today? What am I today? What am I today? Help those who have a sacred memory of where they used to be and they've fallen from where they were. Bring them back. Bring them back. In their backsliding, let them run to you. Let them run to you. Let them run to you. Open their heart's door and have a feast served by Jesus. The feast of fellowship. The feast of a restored relationship. Oh, I pray you'll do it for every heart that you're dealing with. I just want to, your heads are bowed. I, I don't do this often. Is there anyone that you say, I want to get back to where I used to be? I don't feel like I'm where I ought to be. I want to get back. Anyone? We're going to pray for you. Anybody here said, I'm not where I want to be, but I want to get back? Yes, yes, yes. Father, you know the condition of everything that has. And if there's any locks on the heart's door, may they unlock it today. Unlock and give up that stubborn will that Jesus can come in. Come into, I think of what we sang is children's church. Come into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart. Be Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.